0: Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and
1: the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee, a notebook, and pen and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Kevin Shirley. Kevin Shirley, you're very welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Paul.
1: Tell me, Kevin, I understand you grew up somewhere in the vicinity of Newport, which is in the Midlands in the UK, which is actually a part of the country I've spent a good bit of time in. Tell me, what was it like growing up there?
0: Yeah, working-class upbringing, pretty good life, to be honest. You're out in the close to the countryside. I actually grew up in a place in Telford called Muxton, which nobody would be familiar with. Even the county of Shropshire, most people aren't familiar with, but beautiful part of the world. And yeah, just a a really normal, boring, to some extent, upbringing. But yeah, I think that's part of what's made me quite a level-headed person.
1: Yeah, it has that. It's a funny to say that. Certain environments can have that impact on people. And as I said, it is an interesting... I went to college in Stafford for a year, which is a little okay. bit further north, I know. That's where I live now. Uh, okay. And yeah. uh, I worked in Redditch for a couple of years as well. Me too. You know, that's, I know that's a bit further. Did you? Yeah, I did. I was a
0: Vodafone store manager in Redditch, early part of my career. So there we go.
1: And that was back in late nineties, ninety eight, yeah. something like that.
0: Yeah. Memory. Yeah. Yeah. correct. I remember doing the, uh, the Y2K stuff when, when I was in the store. So that kind of helps me date where I was.
1: That's fast. I worked in red H. It was earlier. It was 90, 91. Ni- yeah. 91 there, 92 was in the AT&T as it yeah. was. It may have changed his name after that, but it was, I enjoy those times. N- nice, nice party, nice people. Yeah. Really nice down, very down to earth. Pretty
0: emotional when they were coming into a Vodafone store, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> most part of the world.
1: <laughs> Good stuff. So, tell me a little bit more. Then you said you have a working-class background. Tell me a little bit about some of the early influences that you feel have shaped who you are today. So, I went to an
0: all-boys grammar school and struggled with my weight from probably the age of eleven, really. So, I think you're probably toughened up in that type of environment dealing with that type of situation looking back on it now at the time you don't even think about it but looking back on it now I think that was one of the things that kind of toughened me up also elevated me really I hung around with a bunch of people that were probably way more intelligent than me but I guess I felt I was lucky to get into grammar school my it's funny my mom even tells the story now that the we were going to move house and she went to the headmaster and she said is Kevin going to get into the grammar school and he was like no not a chance And then I happened to get in. Ended up having to travel quite a lot to get into school. It's just one of those things that you have the opportunity to go do it. And yeah, I look back on those years pretty fondly, actually. Like I said, despite the weight challenges and stuff like that, look back on it as a great grounding for me, personally.
1: Yeah. Now, for people who listen to this, who are not familiar with grammar schools, they might think it's something to do with English language. Or it's, it's my understanding, and we don't have the same system here, Yes, yeah. if it, there's an entrance exam to a grammar school it's yeah considered to be a more more focus on academic pursuits
0: yeah That'd be a yeah. fair day they... yeah. no, no way my my parents could afford to put me through any kind of public school or anything like that but, but yeah you just take this test when you i was 10 at the time you have no idea you just bundled into a school hall and sit down and say okay fill out the fill out these questions and, and all of a sudden, you're then given the option of being able to go to a, a grammar
1: school rather than
0: a comprehensive school, had the opportunity and thought...
1: You English don't have complicate things, Kevin. could <laughs> you call it a public school when it's, it's a five-minute like, school. Like, yeah. No, it's like when you go to a match t- and you go to the stand, it's where you sit. It's or in cricket. <laughs> you're in when you're out. <laughs> ah, what a language for others to, to pick up on. But yeah. You said that you were overweight. Yeah. Because and, and that's an interesting one. I wouldn't mind just spending a bit of time on this because I had the exact same experience and it was back at a time, and I'm probably a few years older than you, but certainly back at a time when if you look in school, very few people were probably overweight. Most kids were not. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly, I was the only one in the class. And so therefore, you do get called names and it does toughen you up. You learn to deal with it. I remember going home and whinging to my mother about it and her response was sticks and stones will break your bones. Yeah. And nowadays, we have this culture where we want to provide a safe environment for everybody and nobody gets offended. And I'm always curious to know, I know that you wouldn't wish it on anybody to be called names. But would you have changed it if you could go back and erase that experience where people called you fatso or whatever it was, right? Yeah. Would you change that? Would you have erased it so that nobody called you those names? In terms of now knowing what it's done for you. Pretty tough
0: question there, Paul. I think it depends. I definitely think that I'm it's in no way is it, was it a hardship or anything? And I've chatted with people about it and they were like, were you, were you really bullied at school? Cause I don't mind sharing it at the age of 11, I was 11 stone, which convert that into the kind of the pounds and stuff. And I was an overweight kid. It's really strange. You had, you have these moments. It's funny my own class and everything i grew up with the nicknames but they were like they were almost like became just just terms of endearment towards the end if any if anybody's old enough to remember harry enfield and chums they used to have this guy in there called fat bloke and one of my one of my best mates used to call me fat bloke and that was just it was almost like became a term of endearment but the ones you remember were and again I think back now I was coming out of the physics lab and uh, one of the one of the lads that was in it, a year older than me, walked past me and he went, oh my God, you're so obese. And they are things that that stick with you for the rest of your life. But to some extent, like you said, does it toughen you up so that you've still got, I'm still a pretty sensitive guy and the team will probably laugh at that. But I think you also go through those moments where it does just, it just does help you it later on in life. That you're able to, especially in a sales environment, you've probably the same as me. You've been through some tough sales environments. I think when you've had that early on in, in your life, it does just allow you to press on and to some extent prove people wrong. I purposely went into the, again, this was a school that had the cadets, the army cadets when I signed up and went into the army cadets and it was hard work being a big lab, getting over assault courses and stuff like that. But I purposely pushed myself because I just, I wanted to be better. Maybe I would always struggle to to keep the weight off, but I'd end up being a pretty pretty fit fat lad.
1: Yeah, I think the difficulty with that is is people respond differently to these things, and what made you stronger could really destroy somebody else if they weren't as yeah, really tough to yeah. begin yeah. with. And that's where the line is, and I think that's where it's difficult. But uh, yeah, yeah, in, interesting. So you when. Very early on, you said you went into, you were working at Vodafone in retail, and then I no- noticed you went into the, as an account manager and went from there. Yeah. Was there anything in your earlier years that indicated for you a life of sales?
0: I went into retail really early on when I was at, when I was in sick form, I went and worked at one of the supermarkets, enjoyed the customer interaction type stuff. So I think that was always there in terms of in them moving into kind of retail at at Vodafone, just really enjoyed that, that kind of the customer interaction side of things. But then it was what happened at Vodafone retail was there was the sales aspect of it and this whole thing around having targets and goals and stuff just felt again, just like a, an environment that I enjoyed. I am, I would consider myself to be quietly competitive, even at an early age, my parents and family will say I always wanted to win every card game, every board game that we played. But so yeah, I think it just gave me an opportunity to be competitive. So that's where it stems from. And then it was just a progression of how do I earn more. <laughs> I mean, those early days, it's how do you earn more. I can remember being, I moved from store management into learning and development. Actually, I enjoyed that whole idea of teaching and stuff like that. So I was doing lots of technical learning and development, and I spent time with these corporate account managers who were the they were the cream of the crop. And I just remember sitting there, and again, in an office and thinking, that's the next job I want. These people are the top earners at Vodafone, respected. That's what I want to do next. And your path starts to map its way out, doesn't it?
1: Where do you think that ambition comes from?
0: Just wanting to do better, just wanting to... I think very early on, it was it's the materialistic side of things. Wanting more, want, wanting cars, wanting all of these things that other people had got. And maybe I didn't have as much when I was growing up. I didn't have a, I didn't have a tough upbringing. Parents always provided, but I never had the best of things. So I think you just aspire that I, I want those things. It's definitely changed over the years. It's moved from being materialistic to being more about enjoyment of life, enjoyment of experiences. And I'm not going to start sprouting off all of that stuff about, it's all about the moments and the experiences. But I do think that when I look back on the last few years, it's been way more about, enjoying myself rather than just having a new watch.
1: Yeah. I, I'm curious, what you said earlier about being competitive and playing cards and g- games and so on, And that resonated me with a lot as well. And I think what that does for people, if you respond well to the feedback, is that it also teaches you how to lose. Because if you want to win, you get used to winning. But you're not going to win every card game. You're not going to yeah. win every game of monopoly. And you also become a target because people now want to beat you. Yeah. And you then have to learn to lose graciously. Otherwise, people won't want to play with you. Yeah. And so I don't know that we always see that side of things, but it's a, it's quite interesting how these middle, these earlier life interactions can teach us so much about who we become and, or inform who we become later on. Yeah. It's really an really interesting point you made. So I think that's the humility part. To... I think that you
0: develop a level of humility that you can be humble winning as well as losing. Yeah, that's, it's a quality that I look for in, in people that I hire. And it's a quality that I hold myself in terms of not making a big scene about winning and being satisfied with the wins so that you can deal with the losses as well.
1: Sure. Talk to me a little bit about then. Who motivates you, who, or not, sorry, who inspires you, either past or present? Early on in my career, so when I stepped out of
0: retail and started working in learning and development, I had probably one of the best managers of my career, a woman called Karen Halford. And she, I think she was one of these individuals who, as a manager, she could see potential in people. But she was probably the best coach I've ever worked with. She never told me how to do things we would spend time and I would find the answer in her questions. So what I loved about that was that she enabled me to just like personally grow without feeling like I was having to be told what to do. It was more about taking me on that learning experience. And I just forever grateful to her. I've posted a couple of times on LinkedIn. Whenever they do that, who are the managers that you that really resonate for you? She was I think she was the one that was like, you can go do that, that corporate account manager role. And she really helped me to grow into the kind of the business to business sales side of things. And then I was very fortunate a couple of years into that role. I then started working with a lady called Sarah Sanders. And Sarah was one of these people who was just like my internal cheerleader. Again, I think sometimes when you're humble, you don't shout about your wins too much. And so she almost became my internal cheerleader, like shouting about my wins and things like that. Mm-hmm. And again, I think when you've, got, when you've got great people like that early on in your career, it does make things, it really sets you up for success. They were definitely people that now when I look, when I'm now a manager, they're the type of individuals that I look at and I, take, I try to take some of their qualities, not nowhere near as good, but I try to take some of the things that they did with me as an individual, how did it make me feel, and try and replicate that. And then more recently, I'm a Liverpool Football Club fan. I can't help it. I apologize for everybody, who's, anybody who's not. But the manager there, Jurgen Klopp, is one of those aspirational leaders that you just look at and just look at the environment that he creates in order for people to excel. And again, there's a lot of things that I read about him in terms of what he does that inspires me to try and do the same for my team
1: funny, I want to, sorry, I'll come to the Liverpool a bit, I want to ask you a question, I want to, a little anecdote I wanted to share, but I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about the coach you had, and then the second woman you mentioned as well, I can't, sorry. I Sarah, her yeah. Name. Sarah, thank you. What do you think, when you look back, what do you think they saw in you that you didn't see in yourself at the time?
0: It, yeah, yeah, I think it's just potential, isn't it? It's interesting, there's a podcast that Peter Lencioni does, and he says, look for three things in in, in in every hire, which is high EQ, humility, and hunger. And I guess I'd be putting words in their mouth now, but did they see those types of things? Did they see it? Hunger, somebody, a young guy who was ambitious and wanted to do well, who had a lot of humility, would never trample yeah. over others to, to get to where they wanted to get to. And yeah, my wife would say my EQ is not as good as hers, but... I'd probably say a balance of IQ and EQ. It's funny, people always used to, people always say, oh, hopefully this doesn't come across as big-headed, but people always go, oh, you're a pretty pretty intelligent guy. I <laughs> look around and I'm like, what have I done to display intelligence? I, that's the bit I never understood. I always struggle with, but I think it was just the ability to grasp things pretty quickly, that's especially at that younger age. You, 100%.
1: When people see that you've grasped something... Like- particularly a complex thing, quickly, and you're able to summarize it, automatically they know. And that you're right, that's an IQ, that's a ability to process something and make, set, make sense of it. Yeah, And I think the EQ is far more important in sales, for sure.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh,
1: I have a, an American friend of mine who always said that C students, as in school grading, C, A, B, C students make the best salespeople. Yeah. And I think what he meant by that wasn't necessarily that they weren't intelligent, But maybe they could have got much higher grades if they were book smart and they spent a ton of time on it, but they were too busy developing the social side of their personality. Yes. And and therefore, maybe their grades suffered a little bit, but they were better in terms of interacting with different personality types and... Making better sense of the world. On the Liverpool side, I was in a networking group recently and there was this guy and he was involved in logistics. And most unassuming man you can imagine. Early 60s. And he was talking about logistics and customs and import and export. Boring stuff, right? Yeah. Just everyday stuff. Then one day he started, we had to share a little bit about our background. And he said he played two years first team for Liverpool back in the 70s. I just thought there's these people around us, yeah. and we make assumptions about who they are or what their experiences
0: are like. It reminds me of a clip where this news reporter goes up to the street in Liverpool, and it's the FA, it's on the run up to the FA Cup final, and he says, "Oh, do you remember a, a very specific FA Cup?" And he said, "Yeah, I played in it. I was the goalkeeper." Yeah. And yeah. So when you were telling that story, it was just it reminded me of these just random people on the street that yeah that had. And
1: it was he. I saw that clip, and it, it really heartwarming because he looked such an unassuming pensioner. But he was so proud to be able oh my to say, yeah. Face and the guy up, didn't, it. he didn't believe me. He had to look at, oh my God, yeah, you, you did. And it was just so, pr- his chest just filled up. That was, that's a wonderful, uh, if I can actually, I might see if I can find that and put a clip to it in the podcast. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that puts a smile on your face. Oh God, yeah. Sure. Especially uh, as a Liverpool fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did you end up, when you were, Thought so a lot closer to Birmingham, Aston Villa, I knew this is gonna <laughs> As soon as you mention it, yeah. The accident good Yeah. Asking, is that... <laughs> so
0: my dad was a massive Beatles fan, huge. And so he changed allegiance to Liverpool, where you know, because of the Beatles. And so I grew up on it on the Beatles and Liverpool football club. And so they are two things that were instilled in me really early on, and I still hold them dearly now.
1: Tell me, in what you're doing currently, workwise, what's giving what's motivating you most or what's giving you the greatest sense of accomplishment?
0: Probably the transition from being an L1 manager to an L2, as they call it, which is being directly managing the sales team to now managing managers. That's the bit that's people say, why are you still why are you still at Gainsight? You've been there six years, and it's every year there's a fresh challenge. And I'm one of those individuals where You know, as soon as I spent nine years at Vodafone, but I had probably a different job every 18 months because the opportunity to go and learn something new and it's the same here, the role keeps growing and keeps being challenging. So yeah, that's what's, that's what's driving me at the moment. How do I change from being a coach that's just literally coaching everybody in my purview to now being a coach that's having to coach through managers and change that dynamic slightly?
1: Yeah, and so, in what way is that challenging you?
0: Because I'm a, I'm such a hands-on person. I want to get involved in every deal, and uh, as a manager and of managers, you can't do that. You've got to, you've got to give your manager the ability to be able to go and directly impact themselves. Yeah, it's one of those where you know, I, it, it, you get involved at times, and then you have to recognize when you need to, when you need to take a step back, and also it challenges because I think when you're, when you're the direct line manager. It's very operational, the role. It's very much about the next deal, the deals for the quarter. I think when you start to level up, it then changes from having this combination, which I knew I already always needed to develop, but this kind of strategy and operation balance. How do you think a year, two years ahead, work with the C-level on the two-year, three-year plans and projections, whilst also making sure that you don't lose sight of the year and the quarter that you're in?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a difficult one. It's always the letting go is the hard part. Letting go with the stuff that comes naturally to you. Just yeah, I just I love space. it so much. I, yeah. I came out of I
0: came out of man management from that Vodafone retail store back in the late nineties, early two thousands. I came out of man management, and I never went back into it again until recently, like the last six or seven years. It's I've loved being an individual contributor, and I'm now trying to use some of those skills to help others and coach others. But yeah, there's always that desire to get back in every, in on a deal. Still, will still love the buzz of doing that, but just
1: very much. Wait, think about all of the changes that have taken place in the external environment in the last three years, where do you see the greatest challenges facing sales leadership as a profession where, yeah
0: biggest one right now is motivating a team who have gone from being wildly successful and as a team hitting every quarter growing quarter on quarter to now facing the probably the toughest challenge we've had to face at Gainsight in terms of the economic environment slowing down the growth that we were experiencing that's the toughest thing It's how do you find new things that will motivate and drive people because It's not just going to be on the success of the numbers. So now it's about finding smaller goals, different goals that will continue to drive people along. That, for me, has been the, the biggest challenge.
1: And is that the answer to it, to find smaller goals, to break it down? or Are there other things they are doing to address it?
0: I'm certainly not getting it right and covering all of the bases, but I think, yeah, just breaking everything back down and saying okay what are the things what are the new goals that we should push for i'm a realist at heart so if the target is still going to be optimistic what are the realistic goals that we can set that can try to build towards it and then i think it's for me personally it's about what are the other things that we can do like to demonstrate to those individual contributors that we're trying to make them successful so are there things that we can change is there something we can do at in the strategy that will help give them a different dimension
1: i've heard a term recently in a few of the podcasts i've done and it has different names but the one that sticks with me is called radical simplicity people are addressing this by really saying okay what are the goals and getting really simple about it and eliminating anything that doesn't contribute to that that yeah. would seem to me to be similar to what you're talking about the smaller goals a more focused approach to Targeting those, would that be? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I love what you're saying about the kind of the removing anything that doesn't lead towards those because there is, there can be a lot of noise for salespeople in any business that you work in. There can be a lot of external things, internal things that are going on that will impact and potentially again, like being back at school, can be easily distracted and what I see in the best sellers is that they block out the noise And so again, one of the things that we're we're working on, some of the younger sellers is like, how do you block out some of that noise so that you can just remain focused on your goals? And I'm sure there's other things that we need them to do, but we'll manage that as a team. But you stay focused on your goals, on your track, and let us as the kind of the wider team worry about some of those external things.
1: Funny you to that about blocking out as well, because I only started this week in terms of some of the tasks that i group together that have a, a all lead towards a particular kpi or goal and i put them into blocks block one and i give it a name and within that then there's a workflow for that particular series of things and i did that there's so many things it's not just the ex- external
0: things there's a lot of things that we do internally that ultimately are trying to drive towards some uh, the strategic goals but sometimes that can unsettle salespeople. And so keeping them absolutely focused on the things that will, the way I talk about it, focus on the things that will earn you money. You have to, that's the behaviors that we've set out to drive. So you focus on those and let, like I said, let the team and the wider team worry about some of these other things.
1: Yeah. When I was working with Sander, they had a wonderful concept called pay time, no pay time. And it was very simple that pay time were activities that led directly to money in the bank. Yeah. And they had to happen within certain time segments in the day, say between 9 and 12, and then say between 2 and 5, as an example. Yeah. Anything else, including sales forecast meetings, working on RFPs, whatever it was, no pay time. Do it other times, after 5 o'clock or before 8 o'clock or whatever it was. Every business is different. But I just thought it was such a wonderful, simple way. And I looked at it, because then I could look at it, something I was doing and go, is this a no pay time or a no pay time activity? Uh-huh. And the answer is always, it's black and white. It's really clear. Yeah. it was a no pay time activity. I just need to, I can do it. I just need to do it at a different time. Yeah, And I love that concept, yeah, which kind of fits in with the whole radical simplicity kind of thing. I have to ask you, Kevin, because it's a topic that's just, in won't leave the news and it's not going to leave it anytime soon. AI and how it's impacting the business in terms of the opportunities and the threats of it. Talk yeah. to me about where you see that for... In, in the sales field, you don't have to talk about Gainsight specifically, but just in, in terms of sales and working with customers, where do you see the opportunities and the threats?
0: For us as an organization, a huge opportunity to try and bring in simplicity, to try and bring in some simplicity to what's going on, especially when you've got a wealth of data and you need, one of the things that we've just launched is a consolidated summary of a number of customer conversations and interactions that have gone on. Summarize them for me and the ability for AI to be able to do that. I think from a sales perspective, it's my take on it always is that AI is an enabler rather than AI is not there to take over the role of selling. AI is there to accelerate and enable salespeople to focus on the kind of the human side of things and not get have to get stuck down in the kind of the data and the administration. So The more we can free salespeople up to go and have those valuable conversations and build those relationships and do the things that they're so good at doing, surely that's a good thing. We just have to make sure, I think with everything, we just have to make sure that it's being used for enablement rather than displacement.
1: I'm curious if you've got any experience with it, using it for staff development. I'll give you an example. Only last week, probably this time last week, I was noodling one afternoon doing a no-pay-time activity during pay-time. Yeah. And, is this um, when you did your role play with, your, with AI? Yes, that's the one. And that was a real eye-opener for me Yeah, because I thought, wow, this is... I actually... Because I felt challenged. I thought, okay, how would I respond? I had to think. Now, I, yeah. you have an ability to think where in real life you don't. Yeah, But even still, and then the evaluation, I thought there has to be some incredible applications for this within sales teams where you can... Or what I didn't do and what I could have done was I could have said, when I was describing the buyer, said they're a red type personality, a D type personality who's having a bad day, for example. And another one I did was, and this is where I see some threats to some business, for example, was there's a lot of business out there that sell personality profile type tests and a simple one would be disk. But there's Myers-Briggs and all of those. I went into it the other day and I said, assess my personality according to the DISC model. Ask me as many questions as you need to develop a 95% certainty of what my preferred style is. I was shocked. I came out with a question and then four, four answers. Which one do I take? Four answers. And I just thought this thing has so many applications that companies could use them for, not just for efficiencies in terms of helping write an email, but also help prepare me for a call with a salty prospect that I need to deal with next week or maybe yeah. a, one of these maybe pedantic detail-oriented process-driven type prospects yes. who drive yeah. me mad because I just want to get to the end line and they want to slow the whole thing down. It's so funny you say, I
0: posted that to the team when you put that article out saying, look, I've just been through this kind of role play and I posted it out to the team to say, here's an opportunity for us. If we haven't experienced gone through this experience before or if we're about to go and explain something and we want a, a new product or a new capability or something that we are being asked for from the customer here's an opportunity for us to go and test how will that work out by putting in that I don't think people like you said I don't think we're all truly understanding the application it wasn't until you sent that out that I thought geez I'd never ask questions yeah fair enough but actually asking it to to play a role and to respond in a certain way, just, yeah, was just mind blowing in terms of what we can then, what we can then take it and do with it. I think there's nervousness all round, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is. And here's the crazy thing about it. It was ChatGPT who gave me that idea. I didn't think of that idea in terms of using it as a role play. It, was, it talked about, I was asking it about the plugins and how it might be able to use plugins like Zoom and how connect with that. Yeah. And one of the things it mentioned, apart from listening in on your call and being able to summarise it and give you some sentiment analysis, it also said you can role roleplay. Okay, okay, I never thought of this. So, yeah, it's, we're early days in this stuff and that's what excites me. But there is an element that says, where is this going? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Tell me, Kevin, if you... We're rummaging around in your computer, and you discovered that you had bought some Bitcoin back in two thousand and nineteen, and you'd forgotten about it. <laughs> and it's now worth ten million. And you <laughs> thought, you know what? I'm done with. I'm done with work. I'm just going to enjoy the rest of the time. Of what would you do with your time? What would you spend it on? I'm certainly no golfer, so write that one
0: off. I think we, me and my wife, have always travelled every year, apart from during COVID. And so I think we were just go out on a, if it was that much Bitcoin, I think we would just go on a, on an epic traveling trip. It certainly wouldn't be, it probably wouldn't be backpacks and stuff, but it's cert, it certainly would be, let's go and tick more of the places off that we've always wanted to go see. We're slowly making our way. Where would you like to go and what would you like to do there? My wife lived in Australia for about 18 months when she was a kid. She's not overly bothered about going back, but I'd love to go. I've never been. So I think we'd probably... Go over there first, spend a good amount of time experiencing Australia and then make our way around. South America is an area that we've barely touched. So I think there's just so many places to go and explore. I'm I'm a massive foodie. I love trying different from locations. So I think we just go and end up doing that, which is such I know it's such an obvious answer, but I think you just get so much enjoyment from it. It's funny, we always try and book holidays because it's then... Something to look forward to, and I think that again, one of the things that that has kept me grounded and kept me in this business, which at times can be sales can be stressful. I think whenever you've got those again, you've got those goals. It's five weeks until we go away to Italy. It's then so many weeks until we go, and that kind of actually focuses the time then that you spend working because it's just, okay. I need to get X, Y, and Z done before we go away on holiday. So it's funny when I first joined Gainsite. Just a quick aside. I joined Gainsight the first quarter that we were delivering. So it was the end of October. It was coming up towards the end of October. I had three deals in flight, but I would booked before I joined, I would booked to go away to Vegas for a week for my 40th birthday. And I always remember my boss at the time, Dan saying, you got to do those deals before, before you go away. And by crook, all three deals landed funny enough within a 24 hour period. All three deals landed and off I went. And yeah, always look back fondly on those. That like when you set yourself those timing pressures and actually when you've got something to look forward to off the back of it, it's amazing what you can achieve.
1: My wife and I do that. And the first thing we do when we go away is book a food tour. It's not just about the food, it's the culture of the place and a bit about the geography. All You always get that in the tour. But sorry, going back to your the idea of setting a goal and driving towards that and closing deals by a certain date. I always have mixed feelings about that. I wanted to get your take on it because when you put a date for for a rep to close a deal by a certain time, they'll often use discounts to get that deal over the line because they're working to their timeline, not the prospect's timeline. And where's the line in that? Because at one level, I understand why you would want to focus on getting it in because you don't want it to drift and disappear and lose momentum, but at the same time, you're also leaving value on the table as well. Not every rep, but if you look across the board, you see a lot of that discounting in most organizations, which is designed to close by a certain date. Yeah, Talk about your thoughts on that, the value balance. I think, yeah, so I think a couple of things really. Great reps
0: put enough GAG That they know where the deal should from a value perspective they know where the deal should land so they always give themselves some headroom to be able to do that type of thing so that's point number one point number two is in the absence of a compelling event with the customer especially if you're selling something that's a nice to have not a need to have or there's no kind of there's actually no critical time being set by the customer it's more about oh if we get this in it will start to deliver some roi sooner which arguably is it's not a it's not a compelling event that you can really build a value prop on. sometimes we have to use that we have to use that notion and the third point is time kills deals and we're seeing it way more now than we ever have, which is that deal can be here today and then the CFO says budget's gone, budget's been cut so I think sometimes you, you can use it absolutely to your advantage I think. You've just got to make sure that as a sales manager, you're cognizant of the discount that you're giving and you're making sure that it's aligned with the value to the client. So actually the discount that you're giving is within your give. It's the margin that you anticipated that you would have to do anyway. So you're just accelerating that and trading an acceleration of the timeline. I wish I, I wish every deal we could maximize every single dollar on the table sometimes you can't for us as a saAS business Paul if I booked that revenue a month earlier it's actually more valuable to me so yeah. if it takes you if it takes you longer but you get maybe a bit more for it actually it's more beneficial to me sometimes to take it earlier and take it at a slightly lower value because I can why book why re-
1: is that why is taking it earlier more value because I can
0: start basically accruing that revenue and it's a recurring revenue model. So I can start taking that revenue over that period much sooner and therefore the anticipated lifetime value of that customer becomes more.
1: And you have VP of sales in a, one of your companies from your past. And he had an interesting one. Now he only ever used it at the end of the year when he'd be under pressure for discounting, he was like yourself, who was a lead manager of managers. Got involved in the bigger deals and calling the shots later on. But what he would do is he would get the reps to call up customers and not say, not talk about discounts, but say, I've got a marketing budget, which I haven't spent. Let's say he had a hundred thousand, right? And he said, but I can only give it to one customer. And of course, what that did was it created a sense of scarcity as if you're, there's 10 customers lining up to do a deal with me or 10, yeah, or 10 prospects and only one of them is going to get the money. I thought that was a really interesting, and it was never true, by the way. It wasn't marketing budget. It was just discount. Yeah, I mean, framed it was marketing budget. We've we've all used those
0: call. I can tell you. There's, There's creative ways of creating urgency. Yeah. But honestly, what I've seen is that the clients who you have set that time frame for, like this deal is predicated on a signature by the end of the month, those clients work just as hard as you on closing that deal out when it gets to the end of the quarter. Those are the clients who are still working at 10, 11 o'clock at night. I can remember a deal that one of the team closed. This is going back a few years. We were all in the office last day of the quarter driving this deal. And we even went out for dinner because we, this the signatory was traveling at the time. And so we went out for dinner and we took a picture of us in this kind of restaurant saying, we're all here waiting, hoping that you'll get back soon to sign the deal. And then she sent a picture back of herself on the underground. I'm just on the underground. I'm on the way back. As soon as I get back, I I can get to my laptop and sign the deal off. And I, again, I just think when you create that kind of, that urgency amongst the team and amongst the client, it helps get things closed out. I'm all for using it. It's just, again, you don't want to destroy the value of the deal. But you're taking margin out that you probably have to take out at some point anyway.
1: You think back of your old leadership journey what are you most proud of probably the team that i've developed here
0: when i first started at gainsight just over it's literally just over six years ago now it was me and one other guy as the sales team and that slowly it's slowly it's not been like the huge growth because of the way in which the business has grown and developed but what i've seen the development of i've got a an individual that we brought in as a SMB salesperson who's now hit quota every year, really developed as an individual. I've got somebody I brought in as an SDR who's now selling in our mid-market absolutely and crushing it. So yeah, I'm most proud of that, been able to develop. Like I say, I think when you switch from individual contributor to sales manager, you immediately have to switch the things that that you get joy out of. So now I get joy out of others closing deals rather than having to be the person that closes the deal. I love getting involved. Of course, I make a point of saying to a lot of the team, it's involve me when you feel you need to involve me rather than me trying to enforce my involvement in a deal. But yeah, I think that's the thing that I'm most proud of, like seeing the development of of the of the individuals that you've worked quite closely with and taking them from, like I said, from an SDR into a really accomplished salesperson who will go on and do exceptionally well probably way better than me I'm a bit like Jurgen Klopp he was never a great centre back <laughs> but but if I can be anything like him as a manager going forward I'd be pretty happy with that but he did play for Germany right yeah I think he had a, I think he has he had a little bit of a,
1: yeah he has caps
0: yeah but
1: yeah that's what that's how that's I it's no mean feet I know yeah but he's, that is, it's still no mean feet it's still top 1% for sure yeah. Uh, tell me, I, I know this question is never easy for somebody who's high on humility. In terms of yourself and your own growth, what are you proud of? What do you, as you look at and you say, yeah, you feel proud of it?
0: Yeah, I'm proud of the transition that I've made from being an individual contributor. Like I said, I think I put it off for quite a few years just because when I did it very early on, I realized it's probably one of the hardest jobs in the business to, to manage people. So I'm really glad by no means, again, made some mistakes on the way, but what a great environment, I'm very fortunate. I'm in an environment where that's seen as okay. You can accept the failures as long as you're developing and moving on. But yeah, I think I'm proud of the transition that I've made from being a salesperson to being a sales manager. And that's, I don't think for those that haven't done it, they probably don't realize moving from being quite selfish. To being selfless is something you have to go through. You have to recognize that it's not about you anymore. It's about the team. It's about that. But yeah, pretty proud of what we've got here.
1: Cool. Selling sales organizations and how you organize and interactions with prospects has changed, I think a lot over the last few years. And it was even changing pre 2020. What do you see in those changes that you feel are changes for the better?
0: I think from a from an individual perspective there's the transition of selling predominantly face to now selling dominantly over zoom and those I think there's some gives and takes right the ability for us to meet way more customers and speak to way more customers than what we would do when it in the old way is fantastic I think though know, every time we have a face to face meeting we realize the power of that over doing versus doing something over zoom every time we put on we just had our annual conference in the us and you can just see the buzz that it creates both internally and externally customers loved it and actually our team that got to go to pulse absolutely become energized by it and i think that's the same whether it's a like I said, whether it's a conference, whether it's a face-to-face meeting with a client, I just think that's the bit that, that I miss that we don't do that as much now. But I do think we've massively benefited from the transition to virtual selling in terms of the ability to sell to more and speak to more people. So the give and take. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And that interesting you say about the buzz you get when people are in the room together, that's, not, that's something that AI can never take away. And yeah, and, that, and that's what we chatted about earlier. I think as long as as
0: as long as AI is enabling people to have more of that human interaction, then that's always a good thing. It's the moment when it actually replaces that. And that's what I'm saying about the virtual selling. We still need that face-to-face. But some, Like I said, some of the best deals that we've done more recently have involved a face-to-face interaction.
1: Yeah. No, actually, that's an interesting way of looking at it, that if you can use it to free up more time so that we can switch some, at least, of the online meetings over to -to face-to-face, or maybe there's a qualifying gate on the first call or two, and then it goes to -to face-to-face as a second or third step in it might make a lot more sense than running willy-nilly. I used to do it Every meet, anybody who would say yes to me. I would go and meet with them, and nine out of 10 of them were a waste of time.
0: Yeah, that's the time that it's given us by the ability to do really good qualification, really good discovery. And again, the best salespeople focus on the deals that they know will make them money. And you can't do that without good discovery yeah. and good qualification. So being able to do that, rapidly on on lots and lots of deals means you can then go focus on the ones that really matter
1: speaking of rapid we're rapidly running out of time kevin so (laughs) i'm asking three quick three quick more on the personal side questions let's play desert desert island if you're going to a desert island and you can't take a person with you you can only take a thing with you you don't know if you're ever going to be rescued or not what would you take
0: probably if it has to be a physical thing
1: probably it doesn't have to be a physical thing it just can't be a person
0: okay some way of playing music because i think that just is yeah part of my enjoyment is music and then probably access to the best food ever some way of getting access to, to, to great food because then if you're on an island with great food like why would you want to leave
1: yeah absolutely yeah. so just this island this desert island just has to have a restaurant that plays good music yes there we go Job uh, done.
0: yeah <laughs> I'm there forever then.
1: Very good. Very good. All right. Your house is burning down and your family are safe. If you have any pets, they're safe. Your computer and your phone are safe and you have time to run back in and rescue one item. What would it be?
0: (laughs) Wow. Probably there's a wedding photo in my lounge of me and my wife cutting the cake and she's laughing, uh, must've cracked a joke or something, probably the only time. But yeah, hold that pretty
1: dear. I'd probably go and grab that. Very good. And you can put that on the wall in the bar on the desert island. Yes. Yeah. Final question, Kevin, when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Ooh, wow.
0: Title. how to be a pretty nice bloke (laughs) something along those lines yeah how to be how to be an empathetic leader is probably the more i was trying to think of something that was going to be more catchy than that but yeah
1: yeah all right so if it's about you it's the empathetic leader shall we say rather than yeah to it but it's about you okay cool i like that kevin shirley thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today i've thoroughly enjoyed our time thanks paul